Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Benningen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. You might recall that last year, we read Robert Hayden's poem, Those Winter Sundays. And we promised at that time that that would not be the last time that we would discuss <laughs> one of his poems. And I'm pretty sure that I don't want today's episode to be our last Robert Hayden poem <laughs> either. He's, he's so, he's wonderful. And today we're going to return to Robert Hayden's work to discuss another magnificent poem, Frederick Douglass. Abram, would you please read this poem? Yes. Frederick Douglass. When it is finally ours... This freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastol, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians, this man, This Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted, alien, this man, superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues, rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing. As I heard you reading the poem, I just got so excited. Like, the energy of the poem is incredible. How did it feel to read it? Yeah, it felt like a speech. It felt like, uh, so So Frederick Douglass, of course, was a great orator. That's how he made his start. And then he became a great writer and a great activist in all kinds of ways. And, and it felt like one of those great, you know, oratories that, that he was known for. And, and you, it has a kind of rhetoric to it. It has that kind of feel to it. Yeah, right. So Frederick Douglass, of course, the subject of this poem, uh, he was born a slave on the eastern shore of Maryland, we think, in 1818. We don't know the exact date. He lived as a fugitive slave for years, an incredibly dangerous, precarious situation. Um, But as you say, he uh, was a journalist, an autobiographer, a publisher, a preacher, an abolitionist, a suffragist. Uh, He had an incredible long life. It is impossible to imagine American history without him. Uh, He's my favorite American. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I told Abram that before we started recording. (laughs) It's true. I love him. Um, Anyone who wants to know more about Frederick Douglass, the man, should of course read any one of his autobiographies. He wrote several of them. But in addition to that, I'm particularly excited about Frederick Douglass because I just finished a biography by David Blight. It's called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Boy, do I love that title because Frederick Douglass was so messianic in his message and he really did seem like a prophet. So Frederick Douglass is he's at the center of this poem and what's amazing is that Robert Hayden's rhetoric rises to and matches 
that incredible oratory that Frederick Douglass was so capable of, right? Yeah, and the thing about Robert Hayden, he's a very versatile poet. So we looked before at those winter Sundays, Mm -hmm. uh, but he was deeply invested, of course, in African-American history, and he wrote poems as well that were devoted to Phyllis Wheatley, whose work we discussed as well on this podcast, Uh, Crispus Attucks, the first soldier to die fighting in the American Revolution, Paul Robeson, the great American singer and actor, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, whom we discussed just a few weeks ago, Nat Turner, an enslaved man and preacher who led a slave rebellion in the South in the 1830s, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman. You see, he, he, he wrote these poems to, in a certain sense, commemorate and create uh, the history that had to be remembered. But what makes Hayden so extraordinary is that he can write the poems to the subject. And so when he's writing on Frederick Douglass, he, in a certain sense, tries to match the way Douglass spoke in the the sonnet that we have before us here. And so what's so interesting is that he uses a certain kind of sonnet form. We've talked many times about sonnets. It comes out of Italy. It's, it's transformed by Shakespeare and the English tradition. Uh, and it's, it's, it's in many ways a very old white form, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and here he's taking that form and he's, he's turning it to his own purposes uh, and creating something new with it. And, and that's pretty remarkable as well. Maybe we could walk through the poem to see how he bends it, as you say, for for the content that he wants to convey. If you're looking for those traditional schematic uh, identifiers of the sonnet, if you're looking for a very strict ba-bum, 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 you might not find that at first. If you're looking for a very strict rhyme scheme, you may not see it at first. But what's most important is sort of the sonnet thought or the sonnet logic of this poem, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe we can just look at the first sestet. So when we say sestet, that's just the first six lines of this sonnet, right? Mm -hmm. When it is finally ours... This freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians." Wow, there's so much there. How do you even yeah, begin right. to describe what's happening? It's so rich. Yeah, and 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 he shows that there's a kind of turn coming because that that right after politicians, you get this colon that says, "Now I'm going to answer this when." But but one of the things you notice there is there's five wins in the first sestet. There's a suspense that's created. There's a there's a waiting. There's a mm. hope. There's a there's a a looking forward, which of course in many ways is what this poem is about. It's interesting what you say about waiting and how the first six lines create that suspense. So this poem was first published in 1947. Quite often, standard histories, American histories, will point to that period immediately after World War II as a time of hope and promise and prosperity. Not necessarily for every American, though, right? Because Mm -hmm. for African Americans, especially the veterans who were returning home from risking their lives in World War II, uh, they were not the beneficiaries of the GI Bill and all of those benefits, right, Uh, of housing, of education, of many other benefits that white veterans received. So that notion of what you're describing of that waiting uh, and to continue to wait for this this ultimate freedom, uh, it's very poignant. 
and and I love this this sense of freedom as something that's physical, something mm. that is about brain matter, diastole, systole, the way the heart pumps blood, right? Reflex action, instinct. It is built into the very um, the very living beings that he's talking about. I love that. Uh, you know, there's a, a scholar, Fred Fetro, and he, as when he was describing this poem in his work, he said that in this poem, Hayden is bringing freedom full scale to an elemental reality. That's his quote. I love that phrase, the idea that freedom could be an elemental reality. Mm. And, you know, in Douglas's own writing, and of course, Hayden read deeply and broadly and, and knew all of Douglas's work. There's a quote from Frederick Douglass that really interests me as it relates to um, Hayden's poem. Um, so Douglass, when writing about liberty, was thinking about how he was able to see freedom everywhere in the world except for black people. And, and this is a quote from his Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. He wrote, quote, Liberty, as the inestimable birthright of every man, converted every object into an asserter of this right. I heard it, freedom, I heard it in every sound. I saw it in every object. It was ever present to torment me with a sense of my wretchedness. The most beautiful and charming were the smiles of nature. The more horrible and desolate was my condition. So Frederick Douglass is basically saying, I can see freedom in every part of the natural landscape except for myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that juxtaposition he was seeing between the freedom of nature and his own bondage was a kind of torture for him. So I feel like Hayden is drawing upon that in order to create this sense of freedom as a beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth. And the other thing, we know Hayden's reading Douglas, right? Yeah, right. Because yes. the other thing is he's pulling off of other things that Douglas has said and written. So the first autobiography by Douglas, the most famous line in that first autobiography is, uh, you have seen how a man became a slave. Now you will see how a slave became a man. Mm -hmm. And that's a this chiastic structure is A, B, B, A, man, slave, slave, man, this turn. And you see here at the, the bottom half of this poem that the first time Douglas is described in this poem, he's described as this former slave. Yeah. But by the time he comes to the end of that sentence, he says, this man, this man yeah. shall be remembered. And he, he repeats it. He says, this man, this man, this man shall be remembered. Oh, that's great. So again, just signaling the thought and the care that he's given to the life and work of Douglas in his own poem. Yeah, and if you look, so the, the, the whole sonnet is, uh, we, we've talked about this before too, when you look at poems, one way to, to look at the structure of a poem is to look for the actual, the grammatical structure. And this whole poem is got two parts, the sestet and the octet, but it's also just got two sentences. And the first sentence yeah. uh, is basically 11 lines, and the, and the, and the second sentence is the last three, three and a half lines. Um, but what's amazing about that second sentence, so the first sentence really accomplishes the sonnet thought here. The first sentence really accomplishes what the poem is about. So what does the second sentence add to what we've already got? And what the second sentence adds is this remarkable thought. He's basically saying he's going to be remembered and he's not going to need any poems to do it. Uh, so th there's a way in which this poem is trying, looking forward to a future in which this poem, this kind of poem doesn't need to be written anymore. 
not with statues rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing. It's the lives that are going to be lived that will be the remembrance of what Douglas has done, not the poems written in memory of him. There's a beautiful article in the American Poetry Review several years ago in which Patrick Rosal says this, quote, The poem predicts its own obsolescence. According to Hayden, Douglas will be remembered not with legends and poems. This poem, Hayden's particular construction, this machine of constraints and contradictions, avows its own extinction. Isn't that remarkable? Ah. Because just a few weeks ago, we were looking at Shakespeare's Sonnet 116, and we were talking about how eager Shakespeare is to assert his literary immortality. Mm. He insists that his, his lines will live on. And here, Robert Hayden is suggesting that if all people can be free, we won't need this poem because mm-hmm. the free people will be the poem, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just wonderful. It's beautiful. And one thing we haven't talked about yet is how when a poet uses the future tense, when a poet is speaking to a future that does not yet exist, right? Mm-hmm. There's a way in which that creates a tone of prophecy. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a kind of prophecy, and it's building on that prophetic work of Douglas, looking forward to a future that has not yet come, and in a certain sense, calling people to action in response to this poem. So it's, it's in a certain sense, of course, basically saying, remember Frederick Douglass. He's also, in a certain sense, calling the readers and the listeners of this poem to create that future, to make that future come. And as I hear you talking and as I hear you read the lines, again, even if this isn't that strict iambic pentameter, there's a couple of really powerful things happening throughout the poem. One is a really percussive line that really puts the beat at the front. Mm. Uh, so instead of da-dun, 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 quite often in, in um, Hayden's poem, I hear Dun, 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 dun. That's trochees. Mm-hmm. That's not iambic. That's trochaic. This man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world. You can hear how mm-hmm. assertive that is, right? But you can also hear that pattern of repetition, that word this, such a simple word. But when you keep repeating it, um, that's called anaphora. When there's a word or a phrase at the beginning of fr- multiple phrases, mm. it becomes very incantatory or chant-like, you know, it's like a spell. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's just so incredible, and it, it has my full attention the whole way through, you know? Absolutely. And, and you know, in some ways, that, that, that emphasis on stress and where the stress lies and counting the stress more than anything else, more than worrying about rhyme, rhyme scheme, or, or anything else, he said, uh, Robert Hayden himself said that when I was working on my sonnets, this is a quote from Hayden, when I was working on my sonnets, I was also studying Hopkins. And under his influence, I decided to experiment with stressed verse. So what he's really trying to figure out in these lines, line by line, is 
where do the stresses fall? How do you count the stresses? How do you make the stresses work for you? And that's mm-hmm. that's one of the the sort of legacies of Hopkins poetry. And we've talked about Hopkins before on this on this podcast too. But you could see the way that these poets are. I mean, one of the one of the great points of our podcast is always that these poets are in conversation with each other. Yes. And Hayden is in a certain sense taking a conversation with Hopkins and turning it to a remembrance of Douglas. So, Joanne, with all that said, with the poetic conversations that are going on in this poem, with all that it is doing to remember Douglas and to predict its own sort of sense of moving past the poem itself to a point of freedom, maybe the best thing to do is just read the poem again. Absolutely. Frederick Douglass. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty... This beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians. This man, this Douglas, This former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted, alien, this man, superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues' rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream, of the beautiful, needful thing. For more information on Robert Hayden and Frederick Douglass, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry For All wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>